Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, continuing our series, A Well-Researched Christmas, Dr. Newfeld's going to bring us a message entitled, Historic Beginnings of Christmas. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. can't tell the story of the birth of Jesus without telling the story of impossible problems and political intrigue and great ancient promises being fulfilled among unsuspecting people and a hope that's so real and solid that explains why this amazing story of Christmas just never gets old and just won't pass away. In spite of the cacophony of the sounds of the merchants' appeals to buy more than we can afford, and in spite of the fairy tale accounts of Santa and his sleighs and what have you, the real story, the story of the birth of Jesus, it's so fascinating it just can't be drowned out. Now, since we're studying the first two chapters in the book of Luke, we have already noticed that Luke is a historian. He has examined written documents from eyewitnesses, along with conducting extensive interviews. And now as we come to Luke 1, verse 5, Luke locates the actual time when these events happened. Luke says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. The Herod Luke is speaking about, since there were a number of different Herods, but this Herod has also been called Herod the Great. To this day, if you were to go around Israel, you would still find the remains of Herod's magnificent architectural prowess. If you go to Caesarea, which is located on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, you'll find an extensive aqueduct bringing water from many kilometers away and the the remnants of what must have been a magnificent seaport. And you might also visit the amazing fort of Masada, located in the south of Israel by the Dead Sea, and recognize this also was built by that same Herod. But Herod's most famous building was his massive reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and one can still find remnants of that today as well. But while Herod was brilliant, he was also especially cruel and he was a paranoid. His savagery against real and perceived enemies is especially well known. And of course, Bible readers know him, especially for his massacre of the baby boys in Bethlehem. But the massacre of those boys, even though it didn't make the news, it was really overshadowed by his other cruel events. Indeed, Caesar Augustus, who was then the emperor of Rome, had said of Herod, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. That's because he butchered his own son. Such was the nature of this evil genius. Luke says the account I'm about to describe all happened when Herod was the king of Judea. Now, using our dating methods, we know that Herod was the king of Judea from 37 to 4 BC. Yeah, I know, I know. Jesus was probably born either in the year 5 or 4 BC. Jesus was born four years before Christ. (laughs) You know, if you want to understand that strange fact, it comes about because you have to understand that when Jesus was born, we're not using the kind of calendar we're presently using. The calendars were Roman calendars back then. And it was not until a monk by the name of Dionysius, who was living in the 5th and 6th century, gave us the calendar that we presently have. And it was Dionysius who gave us the present dating system. And we all know that Dionysius made a mistake when he calculated the years of Herod's reign and therefore the birth of Christ. But that's just a little bit of historical trivia. Luke, the historian who doesn't have access to our calendar, simply dates the events he describes in the time of Herod the Great. 
Now, what's also fascinating about Luke's account is that he doesn't begin the story of the life of Jesus with with an angel appearing to Mary or about her virgin birth. Luke begins his account by telling us of a story of a priest by the name of Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth, and the miraculous birth of their son, a baby by the name of John. And the reason for that is that Luke is the historian, but he's also Luke the prophet. And as a historian, Luke is investigating the historical background to the birth of Jesus. And as a prophet, he's investigating those things that are rooted in the Old or in the First Testament. So in order to understand what Luke is up to, we need to paint a little picture. It's a picture that helps us understand why Luke concentrates on the events that he does. See, the story of Christmas rightly begins with a sobering realization. It's been over 400 years since God has sent a prophet to Israel. Indeed, a great many of the Jewish theologians, rabbis, and scholars, well, they believe that the next great act of God would be sending his Messiah into the world. Now, if you don't know the story, I think we do well to pause and to tell the story of the expectation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, or what I like to call it the First Testament, is the story of prophecy and promise. The very first book in our Bible, that is the book of Genesis, records the descent or the fall of humankind into sin. The first human pair, Adam and Eve, rebel against their creator, and they create a breach or a fissure between themselves and God. And with this rebellion against God and descent into sin comes a promise. Genesis 3 verse 15 records the first promise in the Bible about the coming of the Messiah. In that passage, God speaks to the serpent or to Satan, the one who has deceived the woman. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is to say, Satan, the being who deceived the human race and brought it into rebellion against its creator, Satan will himself enter a time of warfare. An offspring of the woman or a descendant of the human race will engage Satan in warfare. Satan will bruise the heel of this warrior, but the warrior or the offspring of the woman will bruise Satan's head. That is, he will crush him entirely. And with this promise, the First Testament is the story of longing. This day of rebellion against God, characterized by evil and death, would one day come to an end. It will end when the Messiah arrives. Eventually, the promised conqueror or the savior of the human race will come. That means he was God's chosen one, and he is set apart for salvation, and the Old Testament longs for him. You know, as one reads through the Old Testament, this promise of a Messiah becomes clearer and more pronounced. In Genesis 49, verse 10, we are told more. It says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so we learn that this ruler, the one who holds the ruler's staff, will come from the people of Israel. Most specifically, he comes from the tribe of Judah. Later on, we're given more specifics. We're told that the Messiah will be a direct offspring of King David. He will approach the Father. The Father will give him the nations as an inheritance. The Messiah will defeat Satan. He'll save humankind from its rebellion against God, and he will rule the nations he'll rule the world. That's the longing that we find in the Old Testament. But when the Old Testament comes to an end, as I've said, some 400 years before the birth of Jesus, 
The Old Testament ends with a promise. Listen to some of the very last words. I'm reading Malachi 4, 5 to 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. If you don't know who Elijah was, well, he was a very significant figure. I suppose I might begin by saying that he is one of only two people mentioned in the Bible who who never died. The Bible tells us that God sent a chariot from heaven. He just scooped him up and he was never seen on earth again. But apart from that breathtaking event, Elijah is known as the foundational prophet in the Old Testament. He had a zeal for God's law, and he courageously condemned Israel's kings for their sins. He was one of just a handful of men in the Bible through whom God performed extraordinary miracles. But I suppose most importantly, his life and legacy sets the stage for a host of prophets who follow in his wake, who speak God's word both to power but to the people as a whole. As the Old Testament comes to an end, we find a promise. Right before the Messiah comes to the earth, Elijah will return. I think it should be made clear that it's not a literal Elijah who returns, but rather a man very much like him. A man like Elijah will come and condemn Israel's sins, and he will also rebuke Israel's evil leaders. And that's where Luke picks up. He thinks you really can't tell the story of Jesus without telling the story of expectation. Before the Messiah appears, the great prophet Elijah is sure to make an appearance. And that's why Luke begins with a very different couple than Mary and Joseph. He begins by telling a remarkable story a story he has thoroughly researched about an elderly couple who were never able to have children. Luke says, if you're going to tell the story of Christmas, that's the place you have to begin. Hey, this is Rika Seward, and I'll be joining Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas. Join us for a week of laughter, inspirational music, worship, and spiritual refreshment. This is a cruise for the entire family, and beyond the incredible entertainment and amenities that the Oasis of the Seas provides, we'll have opportunity to enjoy all the activities available in Ports of Call, including Labadee, Jamaica, and Cozumel. Are you looking for a winter escape? Join me, Rika Seward, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and the Laugh Again team for this incredible, fun-filled journey and return refreshed and restored, both physically and spiritually. It's all happening this coming February 3rd to 10th, and space is limited. So call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. Some 430 years had passed since the Old Testament ended, and prophet Malachi had promised that Elijah would come and pave the way for the Messiah. Most Jews in the first century accepted the fact that no prophet would arise until Elijah reappeared, or at least one who would have a ministry very much like him. He would be the last great prophet who would pave the way for the Messiah. And so they waited and waited. 
I mean, just to put it into perspective, imagine it was us in our time period and that the last prophet had spoken somewhere in the year 1590. I mean, after a while, since so much time had passed, one might still expect that God would fulfill the prophecy, but you really weren't looking for it at any time. And as the years passed, the Greeks conquered and ruled over Israel, and then the Syrians did, and then a great revolt which gave the Jews back their nation, about a hundred years. But after that time, well, eventually, Israel came to be ruled by the Romans. And the Romans appointed a king over Israel. His name was Herod. He was directly accountable to his Roman overlords. And so begins our story, which happens during the reign of a man named Herod the Great. He's the king of the Jews, a king that no Jew wanted. For one, he wasn't Jewish, and secondly, he was genuinely evil. So that's how the Christmas story begins. It begins with insurmountable problems. In fact, there are three of them. First, it begins with ancient prophecies that remain unfulfilled so many years ago. It begins while the nation that expects the Messiah is ruled by a very powerful and brilliant and merciless ruler. And when we start reading in the book of Luke, it begins with an old couple a couple you would be forgiven for believing that have absolutely nothing to do with the Christmas event or the start of the story of Jesus. So let's read Luke 1, 5 to 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Yet in those days, there was an old couple that no one would have known about or cared about named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both of them came from the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe in Israel. And that meant that Zechariah was a priest. But Zechariah and Elizabeth loved God and both were involved in ministry and both were distinguished by their godliness. But Elizabeth was barren, and and now she had been through menopause, and she was well beyond. She simply had to accept that at her age, she would never know the joy of having children. You know, it's difficult to overemphasize the heartache behind the words in verse 7. Childlessness in those days was not a choice. It was considered a reproach or a curse. One wonders what might have been said to Elizabeth throughout her lifetime. The looks, the comments, even the pity of others would have cut her like a knife. One wonders also how many times Zechariah and Elizabeth had bent their knee in prayer. But like the ancient prophecies, no answer, nothing, only the silence of God. I wonder if you've ever noticed that all the great actions of God happen in impossible situations. And that's how we should begin the story of Christmas. It's it's a story against all odds. It's a story that can only be explained by a miracle. So here's what happened. Zechariah was on duty in the temple. I'm reading Luke 1, 8 to 10. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. That might not strike you as very interesting. After all, he's a priest, and what else do priests do but hang around in the temple and, and pray? But what happened on that day is really quite remarkable. Well, that's because there were so many priests in that day. It's actually estimated that there were about 18,000 of them, and they couldn't all serve. So the priests were divided into 24 divisions, and that would mean about 750 priests in each division. Each division would serve at the temple two weeks a year. 
I know that makes only 48 weeks, but that would leave time for the major festivals like Passover. Now, if you were a priest, you would be called to serve twice a year. And when your priestly division was on to serve in Jerusalem, remember, there are at least 750 of you, you would be involved in the daily offering. And every day, two priests would have been selected, one in the morning and then one in the evening, and these two men would enter into the holy place in the temple, and they would be called upon to offer incense as a part of the preparation for sacrificial offering. The burning of incense would symbolize prayer, one priest with the incredible duty of praying for God's people before the sacrifice. Now, who gets to do this since there are 750 of you? Well, the answer, you cast lots. It's like throwing dice to see who gets to do it. Once your name was chosen, well, then you'd be taken off the list and you'd never get the chance to do it again. In short, this was a great honor that usually came to a priest once in his lifetime. And this was that once-in-a-lifetime moment for Zechariah. It would have been the high point of his entire priestly career. He would put on his special priestly clothing, symbolizing purity. His preparation would have started about 2.30 in the afternoon, and about an hour later, he would be ready at about 3.30, and that was the time for evening prayers. People would have gathered at the temple for evening prayers, and for the first and only time in his life, Zechariah would have entered into the holy place, carrying incense to the place of the altar, and ready as God's chosen man on that day to plead with God on behalf of Israel. And as he enters, one can only imagine his emotions. The one day of his life, he would have noticed that on his left, he would have seen the golden lampstand and its light illuminating the otherwise dark temple, reminding him that it was God who was the light of the world. And on his right was the table of showbread, it was a table of pure gold with the bread of the presence on the top. And in front of him was a golden altar of incense, right in front of the curtain that guarded the entrance into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter there. Anyone else would have been killed by God himself. And so Zechariah came as close as he ever would in his life to the ultimate place of holiness. And I can imagine him trembling. And so as Zechariah stood there, as people were waiting outside, standing right in front of the presence of Almighty God, burning incense, with his prayers wafting up to God, what was he praying? Well, we don't know the details, and clearly he was praying for Israel, people of God. But from the text we've read, he must have used some of his prayer time to pray in the most audacious way. He prayed for his son. I don't know if he told Elizabeth what he was planning to do, but it seems either bold or stupid. I mean, after all, he is to represent Israel and not himself. But what we will see is that the prayer for Israel and the prayer for his son, even though he didn't know it, it was in some amazing way, he was praying the same thing. I'm reading Luke 1, 11 to 13. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, since we know that this was Zechariah's moment, that once-in-a-lifetime in which he was ministering in the holy place all alone, that would happen next, frighten him half to death. Zechariah looks at his right in the direction of the golden table of showbread, and there was a strong and powerful figure, great mighty man. He's suddenly aware he's an angel. And all through the Bible, angels are terrifying beings. It was an angel that killed the firstborn in Egypt. It was an angel 
that David had seen with his outstretched hand over Jerusalem that filled David with such fear that he begged for mercy. And here in this holy place in the midst of prayer stood an angel. And Zechariah is shocked for two reasons. You know, have you been in a room by yourself convinced you're alone only to find that someone has been standing there for a long time? It scares you half to death. But he's double shocked for he immediately sees that this being is not a man, but one of God's terrifying and mighty angels. And that, dear friends, is how Christmas began. It started with an ancient prophecy coming to fruition when a weary old man encountered an angel of God and a string of events would happen that changed the world. Luke, who researched these things, is saying, look, God took the initiative. That's how all these things came to pass. You know, and you and I, when we think about the entire Christmas story, should remember that this is an event that no human being brought into being. It wasn't carefully crafted by the willingness of men. No, it tumbled upon men's lives in a way that they had not been expected. These events are completely unexpected, but they are the best possible events that could have happened. So continue to read with me as we read through the book of Luke and rediscover the most timely message of our day. God has entered into the world and come to visit us. John, you know, as uh, we think about the Christmas story, there's there's so many situations where it seems like the, the story just breaks through or there, you know, uh, someone has an experience that they weren't expecting, yet everything is planned out so, so well by God. But wow, the, the, he just breaks in. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because when you consider the Christmas story from God's perspective, everything's exactly on schedule. He's made these great and precious promises over the the many generations, and people have been waiting for them. Um, But yet when they happen, they happen most unexpectedly. I mean, you know, it's so interesting to me that, you know, when Luke begins the Christmas account, it's, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth. I mean, who are these people? They're getting old. Um, They've no doubt lived faithfully throughout their lives. Um, You know, they have their disappointments, and it looks like they're going to reach the end of their lives. They're going to be childless, and, you know, they'll, they'll go into the presence of God, but, you know, they'll never be remembered on this earth at least. And, and then suddenly, I mean, you're in old age. I mean, God had exactly the right moment where he encounters that man. That's the Christmas story. God is in control. We're the ones that are surprised. He certainly is not. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for a well-researched Christmas right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. Hi, friends. Dr. John Newfeld, Bible teacher for Back to the Bible Canada. You know, a little time passes by that I'm not humbled by the impact Bible teaching has on the lives of people. Stories of lives changed, liberated, and discovery of new hope in Christ. We just received this note. It said, I came across Back to the Bible by accident in my desperation to find food for my spirit. Since, my spiritual walk has never been the same. The teaching has opened up scripture in a way I've longed for years, but until now never experienced. This is the power of faithfully teaching the truth of the Bible. December is a critical time of the year for Back to the Bible Canada and all of its ministries, and therefore could I ask you to join us in a special partnership this month to achieve a ministry goal of raising $427,000 by December 31st. Your gift plays a critical role in sharing the light of Christ to a world desperate to hear. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
and may the light of Christ fill you to overflowing this Christmas season.